Well, hello, and welcome to the Partner Connection. I'm Cheryl Cook, and today I'm excited to welcome Tiffany Bova, who's our Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce and a well-recognized sales strategist, author, and speaker, and a good friend of the channel. So welcome, Tiffany. Oh, thank you for having me, Cheryl. There's no place I'd rather be than with you guys talking about this today. I'm excited to have you. And you know, I've been saying that while we're apart in many ways, we've never felt closer. So it is really good to reconnect with you. So maybe for the benefit of all the partners on the line, maybe just share a little bit about kind of your role. I would say it's new, but it's not so new. It's been a couple of years about this customer growth evangelist at Salesforce. Well, it was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. You know, as many will know that are listening to this, I was a research fellow at Gartner for a decade. And before that, I was a channel chief in tech companies for about 15 years. And so when I was looking for what I wanted to do next, I had reached a point in my career where I felt like I was collecting things for a good 20 or 25 years from a career perspective, right? Title, bonus, accolades. And so I was in collection mode. And now I'm kind of in contribution mode. Like, how can I contribute on a more broader scale? And Salesforce gave me this amazing platform, created this role for me to be able to travel around the world, meet with customers, learn and listen about what they're doing, both in and around the channel. But it's also given me this great opportunity to get out of tech. You know, I've lived my whole life in tech. So, you know, now I'm talking to CPG companies and I'm talking to hospitality companies. And so I've learned a ton and it's been an amazing experience thus far. It's been four and a half years. Time flies, doesn't it? It's unbelievable. So you have such a wealth of expertise, and I know you've talked to many partners about sales strategies, growth strategies, and now you know the elephant in the room with this current climate we're in right now and this global pandemic. I'm hearing from a lot of partners you know, they're looking for help on demand generation, digital marketing, virtual selling. You're talking to so many customers. What are you hearing in the way of just sales and sales strategy and candidly sales dilemmas right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I have heard everybody use the new normal term. I don't actually use it and I actually don't like it. I don't either. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, I, I like next future, new future. Going back to the way that it was, considering everything we've now exposed about the cracks in, you know, lack of digital transformation, uh, things like equality, educating from home, remote learning, healthcare, supply chain, it's endless, right? All the things that have now sort of come to light. So I think this is a great time for us. You know, it's sort of this juxtaposition of it's very challenging right? Trying to keep the doors open, try to keep your business afloat, trying to keep everybody employed. So when I make the comment I'm about to make, know that I am highly sensitive to the realities that many businesses are facing. But the opportunity here is to really take a pause and step back and say, what kind of company do I want to be 18 months or 24 months from now? Because this is the opportunity to do a lot of the housekeeping we haven't done over the years, even when it comes to something like digital transformation. I mean, I remember, I'm going to date myself, but I remember it was like 2001 and I was in front of a VAR business audience giving a lunch keynote during uh, an exchange event. And I said, you know what? I work for a web hosting company and instead of buying servers, like you don't need to have lunch with them, put them in this 
the cloud and let us manage it from the data center, right? Everyone looked at me like I had five heads. Like, what are you <laughs> talking about? Like, oh my God, like I have to sell tin. It's break fixes my bloodline. The channel has done a great job of reinventing from being a reseller to a value-added reseller, to a solution provider, to a systems integrator, to a managed service provider, to a cloud provider, whatever you want to call yourself. We've done a lot of work in the renaming and repositioning, but a lot of that underlying infrastructure work that had to happen in the way you do things, how you do things, what technologies you use, who you hire, how you sell, how you support is where we have a ton of opportunity for improvement. And there's no hiding digital transformation at this point, right? Digital for me is a lot about technology and transformation is about people and process. And I think the channel is so good on the technology side and struggles a little bit on the hard, kind of the soft skills of the people and process side, right? They just keep doing what they've always done because they're good at it, what they know. But now customers' habits are changing and the channel is going to have to reimagine what they look like coming out of this. Well, I think now more than ever, you know, I've been referring to this pandemic as a bit of a great equalizer <laughs> because in so many ways, it has all of us kind of at the same place right now. Like the acceleration of digital tools, engagement, the necessity, it's no longer nice to have. It's kind of got us all right here. And in some ways, our customers are here as well. So they're engaging and kind of pushing through that change management, maybe a little more aggressive than they would have otherwise, right? Because it's now a necessity. So when you talk about customer experience, which I know you talk a lot about, and in the context of digital transformation, what kind of advice, where would you point a partner to like, where do they start, right? How do they really work on that reinventing the infrastructure as you were just kind of highlighting? This is you know, a topic I love, right? I mean, I can talk all day about it. There's two things I say now. One, I say, I want companies to think employee first, customer centricity. So your customers are only going to be as happy as your employees. One, the fastest way to get your customers to love you is through your employees who love their job. And so first and foremost, you have to take care of your people right now. Once again, going back to what I just said, that pause and step back is, are you delivering and providing what your employees need? to day in and day out deliver these compelling and meaningful and value-based experiences for your customers. And that is that pause of the digital on the technology side of digitizing your back office and modernizing data centers and doing everything you need to do to run your own business. I'm not, at this time, I'm not talking about what you do for customers. I'm literally talking about within your four walls, what are you doing to enable? So something like, do they have to open up you know, five different applications to serve a customer. Like that's not a great experience. Employees are overwhelmed by all the things that you ask of them to do on a daily basis, which then means it impacts the experience that's then given to the customer. So as a leader, if you're listening to this, this is what I'd say. First, ask your employees, what do you need from us to be successful? What tools, what training, knowing the current environment we're in, what can we do? because you have to stabilize your people first. Next, you want to go out and ask your customers, what do you want from us? Now that you've now experienced this, now you may have 40%, 50% of employees who used to work at the office are now going to continue to work from anywhere. Might not be home, it might be shared space. It could be you know, not home and they're just working somewhere else. 
you know, could be in a client's environment, whatever the case might be, but the new reality is they're going to be working from home. So you want to ask your customers, what do they need from you? So if they say, listen, we expect 40% of our employees to now be working from home when we get out of these lockdown orders, depending on where you are in the world, can you help your customers get their people fully functioning and working in a secure and safe way from home? So I would say to you that the answer to that question 10 years ago, I might've answered right away, Cheryl, I would have said, here are the three things I'll tell you, but I've learned over the last seven or eight years that I've done a disservice by just answering that question, that really the answer lies in asking your employees, asking your customers, getting the team together, and then coming up with what is your way forward. With all of these data points, you may end up doing what you thought you were gonna do anyway, but if you do it and it's completely ignoring what your employees and customers are asking from you, then don't be surprised at the result when it doesn't work, right? So this is a time for you to ask really tough questions, listen, and then come up with a plan on how you can adjust the business to remain relevant and obviously keep your doors open going forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very sound advice. You know, one other question, given kind of just the topic of sales experience, customer experience, one question I'm getting from partners is, how do I engage, attract, and be introduced to new prospects, potential customers that I don't today have a relationship with, right? If I have an existing client, I'm more inclined to get them to accept a Zoom video call with me and they'll come join me. But as I'm trying to grow my business in a climate such as this, what have you been hearing or do you have any creative insights that maybe you've seen with customers you've spoken with? Yeah, I'd say this. I'd say for me, this is the year of the customer, not the prospect, interestingly enough, right? And I say that on purpose because you nailed it, Cheryl. First of all, your customers are more willing to buy from you than a prospective customer. It's less expensive to acquire that additional business from your existing base than it is from a net new customer. They're far more loyal. They're willing to try new products from you. And if you screw up, they're also willing to forgive you. So the base of customers is one that I worry many companies don't pay attention to. Now, in the managed services space, that's almost impossible, right? Because you're constantly working with your existing customer base. So I get that. But some of you who are project-based still and have a small percentage that's managed or you're just project-based and you have no recurring revenue in that way, reaching into your base of customers right now, I would say, is job number one. Now, what are you going to say to them? It cannot be buy more, buy more, sell, sell, sell. That's the wrong tone at the moment. So we did a ton of work here at Salesforce with our Office of Innovation, and we came up with three very distinct tracks of conversation. One was stabilize, having a conversation with your customers. Now, depending where you are in the world or in the country, stabilize may have already long passed. But like I'm in Southern California, we stabilized, we opened back up, we've closed back up again in the last 48 hours. So now we're having to re-stabilize again, right? So stabilize is going to continue kind of on and off depending on where you are. Now, remember, even if you're in Kansas City and you guys are open and your customers are across the country, they may be locked down, right? So stabilize has different meanings. So the first path was stabilize. The second one was back to the office, getting people back to the office. 
we used to say back to work, but I don't know about you guys, but I'm working harder from home than I ever have worked. Oh my gosh, you are not kidding. We've never been busier. Yeah, like, we're actually crazy. calling it return to site for that very reason. <laughs> yeah, so, so the second one is back to the office. And what does that look like? And then the third track was back to growth. Now, I'm gonna be really clear on those three. We recommended that companies actually have people responsible for each of those. So you have a team that's responsible for stabilized. Like, how do we communicate to our customers and our employees if we lock back down? Like, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing for mental health? And what are we doing for making sure they have health care and daycare and all the things that happen when people need to work from home and they're not allowed to come into the office? And so there's lots of communication that can happen there. And then the back to the office, we actually stood up an entirely new product called work.com to help people get back to the office. Like, are you going to let everyone back at the same time? Are you going to stagger work days? Or is it going to be by team? It's full contact tracing. It's who's in the office at the moment. It's all that information and data that you might need. And then the third one being back to growth, like this kind of turning back up your growth and sales and marketing engine. Now, if you think about that and you want to communicate to customers, using that framework or one you create gives you very specific communication reasons, right? To go into your base and say, Hey, listen, I know you're in Los Angeles and you've just locked back down. Here's the five things we suggest you do. Here are the things we can do to support you. You very quickly can create a campaign for those people that have locked back down for Stabilize. Now you have back to the office. Okay, things are opening back up, communicating out to those customers and helping them do this. Like the hybrid, how are you tracking? Who's coming in and out of the office? They have to have an answer for that. And so you are either going to use something like work.com which is one option, or you're going to develop something or use something else, right? But at the end of the day, they can't just go back and, and not have some structure to it. And then back to growth is, Cheryl, that's the big question. So I went out to the market and said, tell me the top things you're challenged with, like selling remotely now. It's not a relationship face-to-face -face sell. Like what's the right tone? You know, it can't be, we're here from you. I don't know about you guys, but I got so much email from brands I hadn't heard from in so long. They're like, we're here for you. I'm like, I don't know who you are. I'm glad you're here for me, but what are you going to do, right? And so that's why that stabilize back to the office, back to growth, that kind of framework allows your communication to be much more personalized, targeted, real-time, valuable, and insightful. And then you can put offers behind that that you may have from a managed services perspective, from a technology perspective, you know, for example, if I were a value-added reseller today, the last four months, all I would have done would have been setting up studios like now I had to set up in my house. It was the most painful experience for me to do, right? I'm as technical as I can be to be dangerous, but I know what I need. I just don't know how to make it all work, right? So if you're really into, you were doing it for retailers or hospitals or, you know, racetracks or whatever, why couldn't you go back into your clients and say, we'll come and set up all your executives to have remote capabilities while they're working from home for quality video or audio or team calls or platforms to communicate, whatever it might be. So that's a long answer. But the reason I wanted to spend that much time on it is that structured approach gives you a lot of fodder for marketing and selling initiatives. And it also positions you as being a trusted advisor valuable to the customer and you're not just saying we need to sell more to you because right now 
I know it's this double-edged sword of you're trying to earn revenue to keep your doors open, but your customers are not in that space necessarily unless they are now saying we're going to accelerate our digital transformation because we needed to pause and do it. So hopefully that gives you a lot of ideas to ponder within your own teams. Actually, that's a really well thought out kind of structured approach. And to your point, you don't want to be tone deaf, right? Nobody wants to appear as capitalizing on kind of a crisis. So it's more about how do you help? How do you serve and really be aligned to kind of their most pressing needs? We've been actually saying that while we saw a lot of customers and partners pivot early to go fast, go light, how do we enable everybody to work from home? We're now seeing people go back and kind of do it right. They're having to harden the environments, right? They're having to address kind of the kinks in a VPN or make sure they've got the right device. But to your point, that's serving a need, but done in a thoughtful tone and a thoughtful way. One of the other things you really have done a lot of research on, and I think in this time of unprecedented, and I hate to use all those adjectives, it's spawning a lot of innovation, right? And creativity is kind of just jumping out at this. And you do a lot of talking and speaking on that. What are some of the most innovative or creative things you've been seeing and learning just in the last few months? So I'd say this, I've been inspired by companies that have really stepped up and innovated in ways that were bigger than them, right? So I'm gonna solve getting PPE to my local hospital. I'm gonna stand up you know, remote learning for my kids' school. I'm gonna donate time to read stories to you know, underprivileged kids, or I'm gonna donate food. Whatever it might be, I've been inspired by watching companies step up and do the work for their communities and for their employees. So first and foremost, the people side of this has been amazing to watch how businesses have really pulled together. And whether it's making ventilators or using 3D printers or you know, clothing companies that are making masks or whatever it might be, that has been inspiring. On the, you know, sort of in our world, if you will, from a technology standpoint, I've always been a fan of the concept of jobs to be done. And I know that that's something that gets tossed around a lot, that term, and many people will use that image of people don't buy a quarter inch drill bit, they buy a quarter inch hole. And the job to be done is the hole in the wood. But really, the job to be done is hanging the shelf on the wall. So taking it one step further of the job to be done is I want to hang a shelf on the wall. What I need to do is deconstruct that. And so during the last recession that we had in 2007, 8, 9-ish, some of the largest brands in the world that are now powering everything we're doing from a social distancing standpoint were founded. Instagram, Facebook, Spotify, like, you know, all these brands were developed and designed and invented and innovated during our last recession. And it was because of, you know, Dropbox, Box, jobs to be done, right? And when you hear the story was, oh, I was on a train and I needed to get documents, I couldn't get it. And so Box was born. When you find a pocket in the market where there's a need, now it's been so much more exposed. So if you think health tech, education tech, while you may have focused in one vertical historically, Maybe you take those offerings and you pivot to another vertical that now sees there's a gap in what they need. Um, remote learning being one of them. Like if you've set up virtual private networks for companies 15 years ago of getting people, right? Of getting networks of multiple states together. Like remember that was a big deal 15 right. years ago. It's like, well, how do you do that for schools? How could you do that 
in education. And I know once again, going back to it's, you're trying to keep the doors open, but at this moment, could you do things at a discounted rate to really help out? Because in the end, when it's time to spend again and they're looking for a partner, they will always forever remember what you've done. So innovating to me right now is, there's a great book by Clayton Christensen and a friend of mine, David, who wrote Competing Against Luck that really double clicks into jobs to be done, which is a great read if you want to kind of understand what that is. But when you're thinking of that, it really is about where are there gaps in the market? I'm not a fan of you completely reinventing yourself and doing something that's not close to your core, especially right now. I would pivot close to your core, things that are natural and obvious extensions of what you're already doing, but look for those jobs to be done. And then how can you create an offer potentially around those categories, right? Stabilize back to the office, back to growth, because back to the office is going to be that connection point and community. It could be a collaboration platform like something from Salesforce, like a chatter or Slack or whatever it might be. It can be all kinds of things from a open opportunity standpoint, but don't just do what you think needs to be done. Once again, go back out to your customers and go back out to your employees and they'll help you figure out where there are gaps. Yeah, you know, you really touched on this has absolutely unlocked kind of the humanitarian aspect in so many of us and in companies, right, that genuinely just want to make a difference, but out of necessity comes innovation, right? What do they say? The mother of innovation is necessity or necessity is the mother of innovation, right? Kind of uh, tagline. So I think that is fantastic. So do you have any just maybe tactical or tangible advice for partners that are really leaning into this as a service. I think the other phenomenon that's being accelerated beyond the fact that cloud computing is clearly here, hybrid cloud deployments are here, but in the context of if they aren't as far along the as a service journey or the MSP journey, that clearly is getting accelerated right now. What kind of just tangible business recommendations or advice would you give a partner who's looking to lean in a little more heavily there and how they transition their business? So I probably gave this on a stage at Dell seven or eight years ago at the partner conference. I was blessed to be part of the team that helped stand up the indirect channel program at Dell. I remember the days when you didn't have one and You know, I was at Gateway Computers, a very large competitor of Dell, you know, a long time ago. And I remember walking on campus the very first time and going, I can't believe I'm here to help the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) But then, of course, it became a love affair, right? So I love you guys. Like like Michael says, that was a millennium ago. Yes. (laughs) But I remind him and I remind him when I pull out the book that I have on my bookshelf over here that says direct from Dell. Right. Right. Okay. So anyway. (laughs) I digress. But what I was going to say is there was a handful of partners at the partner conference. And I said this on stage. I said, you know, going back to taking this inventory, if you were to list all the things you sell and then what you charge and how profitable they are, and you were to list all your customers, how much they spend and how profitable they are. And I told you, I want you to wipe out the bottom 15% every year. If it's not profitable, it's not as profitable as it used to be. Should you still be selling it? Should you still be doing it? Should you still be offering it? So even though they're your biggest customer, they're your least profitable. And they're probably your most that spend time on tapping you on the shoulder for support and help and 
They're constantly asking you for things you can't do and they're not very happy. They spin your people, it's not a great experience. And so why are you keeping them? Because you want the million dollars in revenue that's generating you know, two points in margin. It's like, maybe fire your customer. And when I said that on stage, everyone went, ooh, right? We can't <laughs> fire our customers. But the point is, is you wanna make sure, remember your employees are happy, you're freeing them up to do the good work that is driving profitability. So if you take those inventories, you should constantly be evaluating and looking at, is that an offer, a product we still should be offering? And is that a customer? So unless you're publicly traded, your top line revenue number is strictly ego. <laughs> What's important is you know what the bottom line is, right? So many, what I'd say to partners is, I'm really thrilled you're a $30 million business. How profitable are you? And when I would challenge them to say, if you did remove the 15% of customers and products and you became a 15 million or $20 million partner, but your profitability was 4X, now I'm interested, right? And so that's why I pushed really hard early in channel programs to get away from being a revenue-based program because then it was the wrong metric, right? Because then the partners were striving to get bigger, not more profitable. And if you're not more profitable, you can't make investments in all the things you need to from an infrastructure and a people perspective. And so for me, and especially managed service providers, so for example, break fix as just a basic example, it might not be as profitable as it used to be for you. So go partner with another partner who only has a break fix business, have them pick up that portfolio, make a little bit of money off that, shed it off your books, because it's not making you enough money and focus in on hybrid consulting, right? Or custom development or change management or design journey mapping, design thinking, whatever it might be, higher value services, still make a little bit off of that, but don't let it be your focus because the margins on break fix, you know, when we used to roll trucks a long time ago, it was 250 an hour for a break fix technician. And it would be from the moment the truck rolled to the moment the truck got back. And now you can do all but 5% if there's, unless there's a hard failure remotely. So that's like 30 bucks an hour now or 40 bucks an hour now. That's not profitable when the person who you need who's answering that managed service request is a two or $300,000 a year resource. At the end of the day, this is about rationalizing your business on an annual basis. And right now is a perfect time for you to rationalize. Do you want to come out of this pandemic doing exactly what you did going in? with the exact set of customers and the exact employees and skill sets. I'd love to have a conversation with someone who said yes to all of those three, right? Because I'd love to hear why they think that's the right way to go. And I'm not saying it's not the right thing. I just have to really be convinced that there was nothing that needed to be changed. Yeah, you know, you touched on something that we're absolutely seeing as a growing trend. And I think taking that rationalization and strategic lens you just did, which is much more partner to partner, teaming, alliances, having just good clarity, right? On complementary skills and capabilities within the partners. You know, what are you seeing or what would you comment on kind of just this notion of as we do come out and we look at kind of what the next decade of kind of services about the ecosystem and frankly, the opportunity that exists on just partnering and alliances being forged with peer companies? Yeah, I have to say, I'm not sure why this hasn't taken off. You know, I wasn't the first, but I was very loud, sort of 2006, seven, eight, nine, about P2P, the power of partner to partner collaboration. 
and it just never took off. And you know, I remember even when I was with Gateway and CDW launched a program and said, we want to do partner to partner. We'll handle the hardware supply chain and distribution, you know, for brands. And then the partners can go and do all the services revenue, right? Because at the time they didn't have the capabilities that they have now. And all the partners were like, oh, no way would I ever give CDW, right? My name of my customer and what they're buying. And that was 2004, right? So this was 16 years ago. Then when I landed at, at Gartner, I was like, look, the power of it. And even in my book, Growth IQ, I take an entire chapter on partnering and another chapter on coopetition. And that chapter on coopetition was all about P2P. And so the technology space is the best example of it. Wintel, think USB drive, like just the USB drive. That is P2P at its finest because you have Dell and HP and Apple and Sonos and Sony. Everybody's got a USB, right? They're trying to make it easy that the one plus one equals three. So this has to be that, trust me when I tell you, you are not 100% capable of delivering an end-to-end -end solution. If you're a Dell partner, there are things in Dell's portfolio it doesn't have. Like, it doesn't have Office. You know, it doesn't have Salesforce. It's not that it doesn't resell it. I'm saying it doesn't manufacture it, right? So it had to partner to do things. So at the end of the day, that's the opportunity from a channel perspective to say, what is a complementary partner for me that I can work with to either take some of that non-profitable business for me off my plate or give me capabilities going forward? Um, and coopetition would be an example like Salesforce and Microsoft, right? It's how many of our customers use Salesforce, use Outlook, probably a really big percentage. Yes, Salesforce competes with Dynamics, but at the end of the day, our customers use both companies' technology. And so if we can make it work more seamlessly together, isn't that what we should do? That's the thing I'd say about it is this can't be you own the customer, who owns the customer, because the only person that owns the customer is the customer. But vendors have struggled for decades to figure out how to get partners together, whether they've tried incentives, they've tried consortiums, they've tried associations, they've tried forced programs. And it just has never, ever paid off, except at the very high end of SIs. So I'm not saying that there aren't a few in there where a few groups of companies have gotten together to sort of form a consortium, but those are very far and few between, like a green pages, like where it's far and few between. So at the end of the day, I feel like here again is a great opportunity. Do an inventory. Who could you partner with to help you get capabilities? So let me just pick like, collaboration, it's not one of your core competencies, but all your customers need collaboration right now. You're either gonna to try to build that capability really quickly, or why not partner to deliver it to your customers? Yeah, great example, great example. Well, you commented on your book, and I'd love to hear a little bit, congratulations on the book, by the way, Growth IQ. So maybe just, maybe share one of the biggest challenges in taking on a project like that of writing a book and then maybe what's most rewarding? It was the hardest, most painful, <laughs> cathartic, inspiring, <laughs> challenging thing I've ever done. Like, first and foremost, I don't like to write. Yes, I know that's ironic. I was an analyst. I didn't like to write then either. You know, writing the book was really tough for me. So I had to find a way to get my style of speaking and talking and thinking on paper. 
And the moment I sat down and saw that little icon flashing, it was like I started to sweat. I would walk <laughs> away and nothing would happen. So I had to find a way to do it. And once I did that and I kind of got into the groove of what was going to be the way I could write the book, I found my superpower in the sense that I wrote the book I would want to read. One, I'm not a read learner. I'm a listen visual learner. So I wanted to write a book that was a little more approachable. And so it's 30 stories instead of 300 words of the same thing. The stories made it digestible. I put sort of sketch notes in there instead of an Excel graph or a PowerPoint. Like I wanted to keep it lighter than that. And I wanted people that when they read it, they felt like they heard me writing it, right? Because I have a very specific storytelling style. And if I had had someone else write it for me, there would, it would have never flown, right? Because everyone would have been like, like I've heard her speak for 15 years. Like that doesn't <laughs> sound like her at all, right? So I had to make sure it was authentic and true. And then I wanted it to be something that captured, you know, the 25 years of my experience of being a practicing sales, marketing, customer service channel leader and my academic side on Gartner for a decade. And I had to bring those two things together. And the best way for me to do that was to let the stories tell the story versus me pontificating about what I thought. I just let the stories tell it. Well, congratulations on that. I know it was rewarding and it's been awesome to see it published and do as well as it did. In conclusion, and I appreciate your gracious time that you've been with us, I kind of throw a curveball to everybody I talk with, but for the record, what might be something that's just a fun fact about Tiffany? What might not be on your resume? What we might not know about Tiffany? Oh, at this point, wow, that's hard. <laughs> well, I was born and raised in Hawaii, which I think lots of people know, but that might be one. I went to the same high school as President Obama. Oh. So he was Barry at the time, not Barack. So we have a rich sort of school. A classmate of mine was the founder of eBay. And so that came out of Hawaii as well. And one of Brock's uh, classmates was the founder of AOL. So we had a pretty good, you know, technology, eBay, AOL, and a president. So that might be a, that might be a fun fact. That is a good trivia fact that I didn't know. Well, Tiffany, it's always a pleasure. Please stay safe and healthy. It's wonderful to see you. I hope you get to travel again soon, because I know I'm eager to travel again soon. And I know our partners are delighted to hear from you. So thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Cheryl, so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope everybody's doing well that's listening. And I miss seeing you guys. I look forward to seeing you soon. Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do that very soon. Thanks so much. Well, thank you again, Tiffany. And to learn more about Tiffany, you can follow her thought leadership. You can visit her website at tiffanybova.com and also follow her on Twitter. She's Tiffany underscore Bova. And thanks again for listening. Please check back in a couple of weeks for our next episode. And until then, please stay safe and be well.